multiple whistleblowers have alleged over the past decade that state and military leadership has failed victims of workplace hostility and sexual assault within the Wyoming National Guard. A joint investigation from the nonprofit publication Wildfile and Wyoming Public Media found specifically that women's complaints often fell on deaf ears and solicited retaliation. To learn more, K2L's Will Walkie interviewed the three authors of the recent investigation, Jennifer Coker, Camila Kudelska, and Tennessee Watson. Jennifer, Tennessee, and Camila, thank you so much for joining me and for talking with K2L about this reporting. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank Thanks you. for having us. Could, could one of you just outline a little bit some of exactly the types of discrimination and retaliation some of the women that you interviewed for this story are facing? I, I can start there. Um, there was a general consensus of three of the women that I had spoken to. They were in the position to report sexual assaults and sexual harassment and discrimination to a, a smaller degree. And in all cases, they felt that once they brought those cases or attempted to bring those cases up the chain of command and through the process as dictated, that they were then, it wasn't a private process as it was supposed to be. And they were either discouraged from reporting. Um, and, and by that, I mean, uh, the people they would tell the, to their direct superiors would say, I don't think that's necessarily as serious as you think it is. It was kind of degrees of seriousness as it, based on subjective judgment. And, and then it was retaliation for that. Camilla, in, in your in your Wyoming public media story, one of your characters talked about when she came forward, her supervisor and the person that she was talking to sort of mentioned things like alcoholism and just classic kind of deflecting blame toward her um, rather than toward something else, it seems like. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so Jenny Rigg uh, was someone, as Jen mentioned, who actually had the power to help certain airmen be able to um, report sexual harassment and sexual assault. And she struggled when just trying to help them report her commanders were telling her that she shouldn't do this. Uh, and it got worse when she tried to report her own sexual harassment. And that's where it kind of came to what Jen was talking about, which is like personal retaliation and what you were referring to that's when the commanders started really reflect, deflecting on her personal issues that had nothing to do whether she was truly sexually harassed or not. Um, and I, I think to what Jen was saying earlier, you know, in most cases, these women were retaliated in the way that they weren't able to do their job anymore. And they all really, really care about the work that they were doing. They wanted to help and serve the United States um, through the National Guard, through what they were doing. And I think that was always, I, with at least Jenny, it was for sure one of the main reasons why she felt compelled to try to figure out a solution to this because she felt like she wasn't, the airmen weren't getting the service that they needed from her. Jennifer, would you introduce a character that you talked to for this story? Yeah, one that sticks with me in a compelling way is Marilyn Burden. Um, I, and she's one of the few people who did not have her own EEOC claim. 
Um, she was, she had been in the position, she, she was unique, but she had also worked as the IG at one point, which is a person who investigates internal complaints. And, and she had been, she'd been a SARC, which is a sexual assault response coordinator. And she, so she had seen kind of both sides of this and her frustration was just palatable. You know, she was just very upset and she cares deeply. She's still in the military. She's in a different state now she left the Wyoming guard, but she, and she went to Colorado in a different unit, but I, it, she just cares very deeply about the people serving. And, and that was her impetus for coming forward in the first place. She wants to see the processes changed. And, and she was a person who had went to the governor um, and she actually got a meeting with him and, and she just is tireless in her efforts, even though she technically, well, none of them have anything to do with the Wyoming guard to date, but but they all still care a lot about the people still in it and, and that things are fixed. So I want to talk a little bit about how this situation changes moving forward. In my mind, there's sort of the government legislative aspects. But first, I kind of want to talk about more of the cultural aspect, which is obviously a harder issue to nail down. Um, can any of you talk a little bit about how you see this changing culturally in terms of the Wyoming National Guard being a more receptive place at the very minimum um, for those who feel that they've been discriminated against. At one point, it seems like the top leadership is drives the bus as far as the culture, he sets the tone. Because as Tennessee talked about too, it, it's the, the structure is, it, it's a unique structure in that they kind of govern themselves with minimal oversight, um, to put it quite, to put it very simply. But uh, there was a point when they had one general and his name was General Swanson and he came from National Guard headquarters, I believe, or I know he returned there. And he was somebody who, would, when he came in was when Jenny Rake had just started and he told her immediately, he said, we have a problem, let's get training. He gave her everything she needed. He stepped out of her way and said, you tell me what needs to happen. And there were a lot of trainings and a lot of kind of internal uh, culture, it was open. And, and that change is based on the various leadership. When a leader comes in, he or she brings their own particular subjective criteria and what they believe is important or not important. Tennessee, you mentioned the state legislature. I'm curious, what, what, what can they actually do to help the situation like this? And do you have a sense that that might happen moving forward this year? Yeah, I reached out to um, some national experts that are working on this issue in other states because Wyoming is not alone um, with this challenge. And um, some of the folks I talked to suggested simpler things like if the legislature would require quarterly reports from the Guard, um, you know, how many complaints are we getting and what are you doing about them? How many of them are investigated? How many of them lead um, to some kind of consequence or punishment and just being able to watch the the flow in of allegations and then how they're processed. Um, but of course, that's, you know, not a solution in of itself. I know that Vermont tried something similar where public officials admitted like, yeah, we, we were getting those reports from our guard, but we weren't necessarily looking at them. So of course, in addition to requiring um, reporting from the guard, it would have to be a priority on the part of the legislature to review that. They, they would need to see themselves um, as a body with the power to hold the guard to account. 
I mean, I think it's also really important to acknowledge that for folks that are civilians, they have access to civil litigation and that process. But for folks who are solely enlisted members in the military, they don't have access to to a civil legal process. So they really rely on the military justice system um, to deal with workplace harassment. Um, And I think that that's one of the reasons that focusing on this is seems so important because you can see in the case of Amanda Dykes and Jenny Rigg, because they were civilian employees, they have the the access to EEOC complaints um, and that sort of external process. But then Rachel Bennett, who's a dual status technician, she falls more in the camp, or at least the guard makes the argument that she falls more in the camp of an enlisted member. And she, she, you know, they're arguing that she doesn't have the right to the EEOC process. So I think that's the other thing um, for the state legislature that expresses a lot of concern about people who um, serve our country. Um, But they do have on their agenda for the November meeting of the Committee of Transportation, Highways and Military that they will discuss these issues. This story shocked me. I think it shocked a lot of readers and listeners. I think it's an example of journalism potentially being able to actually make some serious change in people's lives. What's been the reaction to the story after it dropped? Well, for first off, I guess there's a third whistleblower that came out earlier this week and she supposedly cited um, our reporting. She was able to hear that other women have experienced similar things and it helped encourage her um, to come out and speak. And from our sources, it sounds like there's a lot of people who are coming up and speaking to them about things that they've experienced in the National Guard. And legislature is supposedly paying attention. We have um, supposedly legislature uh, politicians are speaking to uh, Jenny Rigg, to Marilyn Berlin, and to Rachel Bennett about their story. So for now, it just seems like, you know, it's getting the attention of people. And I think to Tennessee's point, we kind of just have to wait till November to really see what if anything, politicians will do. I'm just curious, had any of you reported on anything remotely like this before? And, you know, I'm just curious what it was like reporting on something that to me was just so, so sad and so serious as well. I've I've done reporting like this before. Um, I think there's similarities between this story about the guard and um, reporting that I've done about campus sexual assault. Um, It also reminds me of issues faced by Native American communities that, you know, in all three of those examples, whether it's campus sexual assault, what's happening with the National Guard, or missing and murdered Indigenous people, perpetrators operate with impunity because of these jurisdictional issues. Sort of like, whose job is this? Not my job, it's that person's job. And a lot of like, passing it around. So yeah, it, 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 it's definitely challenging terrain. Um, and I, and I think it's, you know, it's challenging because to me, the way not to tarnish your reputation is to do a good job and follow through when people say that they're harmed. But I think there's this inclination on the part of people in positions of power that they don't even want to admit that it's happening under their watch. And that feels like there needs to be a bigger cultural shift, which says like, 
your tarnish, your, your reputation isn't tarnished because it happens. It's tarnished because of how you respond to it. And I think until we get to that place as a culture um, where we're really like clued into accountability and addressing harm and finding pathways to repair, like people are going to be able to continue to get away with this stuff. Tennessee, Jennifer and Camila, thank you so much for joining KHOL for talking about this reporting. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you very much.